Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Prevost. And I'm your host, Shelly Prevost. We are the podcast for the Big Self School, and we offer classes, coaching, books, and media to help you rediscover your purpose and activate it in bigger ways. Thanks for taking a little time right now while you're driving around, maybe running errands, maybe making a little dinner and trying not to tune in to all the outrage media right now, or maybe you're going for a walk and a little workout in. Whatever it is you're doing to cope with the constant new normal of these uncertain times, as we barrel into the holiday season, we are glad you're here. Joining us today is Tara Hale. Tara is a regular Forbes contributor and the core topic leader in medical studies for the Association of Healthcare Journalists. As a freelance science and health reporter and parenting blogger, her pieces frequently appear in NPR, Scientific American, Slate, Politico, Health Day, Everyday Health, and Consumer Reports. Tara is also author of The Informed Parent, a science-based resource for your child's first four years, co-authored with Emily Willingham. In another life, she was also a world traveler, backpacking, hiking, train hopping, and motorbiking through more than 40 countries on six continents, eating strange insects, climbing ancient ruins, and swimming with sharks. Sounds pretty good right now. All of that, though, is pre-pandemic and pre-being a parent. So uh, our interest, actually, in this interview is discussing what research is telling her about how we can cope in a crisis that just keeps going on and on, Shelley. Well, let's, let's, yeah, let's just do hop it. to this bright and early. Um, thanks so much for, uh, for being on, Tara. Sure. Well, um, I know this for sure. What you wrote about uh, those few weeks ago seems to apply all just as much uh, to our current circumstances. Sadly enough, you know, you writing about these the stressful situations we're going uh, we're going through during this pandemic. Uh, and at first, it, the interesting thing I thought about what you were writing was right at first you were thriving. Uh, so could you tell tell us a little bit about how you were doing so well at first and, and then what shifted? Yeah, I mean, part of it was that my default in terms of just everyday life is that I'm one of those people who freaks out about the little stuff but never freaks out about the big stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like the classic anxiety disorder thing. Yep. Um, I'm very comfortable in an emergency situation or in, you know, when, when things are going crazy around us, then... I'm very good about saying, okay, what do we need to do? How do we get through this? Let's do those steps. And being the calm one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I'm, I'm comfortable in that place. And that's exactly where I went uh, throughout March and April. And a part of it was because I actually, as an infectious disease reporter, I knew exactly what to do. And I did have more knowledge than the average person in terms of making sense of all the conflicting and different and confusing information coming out. But also part of it was that I sort of thrive in that high stress, you know, not just deadline sensitive, but sort of chaoticness, I guess. Um, I do well in that environment, but I only do well in it short term. Mm -hmm. Say that nobody can sort of sustain that that heightened sense of I'm not even sure what you would call it. It's this heightened sense of activity, I guess, but it's it's more than just that. And it's responsiveness it's, too. You know, exactly, I think about like exactly. the the ca- catastrophizing that that thinking is yeah. kind of you know forecasting what could happen. Exactly. 
And so I, you know, I was able to, to respond well to that, Mm -hmm. but because the pandemic is something that just keeps going on, you can't keep doing that sort of, you know, adapting to the whole, um, high energy, high output, uh, scenario. You, You can't just keep doing that. And so I sort of crashed and I knew that I would crash because I've been in other situations where, you know, you, you do fine for a little while and then you hit a crash because you know yourself well enough by the, you know, a certain point in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what was different in this case was usually when I crash, it's after whatever the excitement is, is over. So, you know, something comes along, you sort of kick into overdrive and then you peter out, but the, the thing that pushed you into overdrive in the first place is no longer there. Well, that wasn't true anymore because the pandemic was still there. Still and in happening. fact, it was just as bad as it was and getting worse. Yeah. So, you know, that was my crash and I didn't really know what to do with that. And that's, that's kind of what I hit. I hit that mostly in, I guess it was late May into June when it really hit. And then July was kind of, I was at my nadir. Well, and of course, that's what you were calling a uh, surge capacity. Could you tell us right. uh, what surge capacity is for our audience? And then like, you know, the struggle of like, how do we, even if we recognize that we need to be renewed, uh, you know, because we are in this kind of chronic sort of emergency situation and, and some, how do we, how do we find ways to renew? Yeah, well, and I didn't have the terminology, the word or the expression surge capacity was something I learned when I interviewed Ann Mastin, who's a, um, she's a professor at the University of Minnesota, and she talks about surge capacity as this sort of collection of adaptations. And she means it both in the physical sense, kind of like, you know, adrenaline or, or built up, you know, ability to deal with high stress situations and sort of your cognitive and, and emotional, psychological abilities to deal with that. And that surge capacity in a human is very similar to the surge capacity in a hospital or in a factory. If a whole bunch of patients comes in at once or a whole bunch of orders comes in at once, there's usually some kind of mechanism at that institution that lets you manage that sudden overflow or influx for a short period. And then, you know, you return to baseline and then you kind of gather up and you continue your merry way. And the problem was that in this case, the need for that surge capacity exceeded the capacity itself. Mm-hmm. And when she provided that analogy, I just, it really spoke to me. It really clicked because that was how it felt. It was like, okay, I kicked into overdrive and I'm still in overdrive mm-hmm. and I need to still be in overdrive, but I can't be. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Right. So, Um, and, and that was how the whole thing came about. Um, when I spoke with Dr. Mastin, she recommended to others I spoke to, uh, and Pauline Boss and Michael Maddows, and those are the others that I interviewed in the article. And it was just, it was incredibly illuminating talking to the three of them and learning terms and language to describe what I was experiencing. Yeah. I, I love that as somebody who's studied and went through burnout and coach people in burnout, uh, something you're saying really resonates with that experience, which is this um, kind of this tired and wired, this chronic stress syndrome is kind of how I talk about burnout. And you write how you be, you began to feel down, but you knew it wasn't depression. You knew that that wasn't exactly what it was. Uh, and you talked about it as this anxiety-tainted depression mixed with ennui that I can't kick. 
And I love that. And I think that that kind of mixture of down, feeling down and feeling very anxious really sums up this experience for a lot of people. So I I wanted you to share a little bit about what you learned about especially high performers uh, right now through the pandemic, which is a lot of what our audience, um, they may not say that about themselves, but they are, they're doing a lot. So we've got all these balls in the air. Why is this so much harder for, for high performers? I think for people who are used to dealing with a lot of things going on at once or used to having certain patterns or schedules that they keep, it's even harder when all of that gets interrupted and you, you know, you're, you're so used to go, go, go. You're used to operating at a higher level than the average anyway. And it, in some ways that could mean overachiever in the classic sense of someone who has a lot of goals and is always seeking them, Mm -hmm. but it could also be someone who simply has a lot, you know, maybe there's someone who financially they need to be working three jobs at once and they've been doing that for a while. So you, you know, if you move at that sort of high level on a regular basis, then when the rug is ripped out from under you, it's kind of like you, it feels like you have further to fall. I guess that's mixing metaphors a bit, but um, you know, you're, you're used to being, if not in control, having some level of control over your immediate environment and what you need to do. And in the case of this pandemic, all of us have lost that control. Yeah, we that's... were not able to control any aspect of our, you know, that we, we can't do anything to fix the problem. If we're problem solvers, and we're like, okay, let's look at the problem. Let's solve yep. it. Let's move on. Well, we can't solve this problem on our own. Um, this is something it's far bigger than us. And I think that's really frustrating because then you have the sense of helplessness. I think that word control is probably like hitting it on the head. Because um, I do, I, a lot of people that I've talked with, and even some of the people I'm coaching right now, that is a really... Um, anxiety producing spot to be and exactly where you're saying just before it never ends and so being in this chronic state of powerlessness when pretty much the rest of your life you you at least there's you know it's feigned control the rest of our lives we feel like we're in control Uh, and so this is a place of just um and 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 like this this level of uncertainty that never ends so I think uh like how you know in your research and the work you did like you know, and I know how I talk to people and coach around it, but I'm curious, you know, the, the women that you've seen, um, that, you know, that this is happening at this kind of grand level right now for us, what's working? Like, what are some women and, and, you know, anybody really, but I know you've, you've seen a lot of professional women who are kind of the same spot. Um, what's working? What are people finding is, um, I don't even like the word coping skill because I feel like that doesn't really get to what it is, but what's right. helpful? I think all of it starts with two things. The first is actually accepting that we're in a different place right now. Mm. That you know it, the reality is what it is and accepting it for what it is, yeah. not trying to change it or you know continue trying to exert some control over it that you don't actually have. Um and, and that's you know I think that's actually a lot of people are still you could call it the denial stage, but I think a lot of people are still stuck in that. A lot of people still can't quite accept oh, we're in this new place, normal, whatever, and we're going to be here for a while, maybe a year or two. Uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are having trouble accepting that. So they're, they are not able to devote their attention toward adjusting for how to survive in that because they're still fighting against the reality of it. And then the second mm-hmm. thing that I think is really key is after you accept it, then accepting what it means. 
So it's accepting the, what the reality is and then accepting the implications of that reality, which to me, the first thing is expecting less of yourself. Um, if you don't adjust your own expectations for yourself, then, you know, it's, it, 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 there's, no, there's no way that you can move forward. It's kind of like if you're a champion swimmer and all of a sudden someone picks you out of the ocean and, you know, dumps you in a vat of syrup or something, I don't know, <laughs> you are just not ever going to be able to you spend the exact yep. amount of horsepower, you know, trying to swim through that liquid, you are not going to make it as far. You'll have to, you know, try three times harder to go half as far. And that's just reality. You can't change that. It is what it is. It's not a reflection of you or your ability. It's a reflection of the circumstances that you've been placed in. And so you're going to have to say, okay, my previous mechanisms for dealing with this just aren't going to work. I, you know, I can't go full out and you know, I'm going to have to take more breaks. I'm going to have to cover further distance each day. That one's been hard for me. So I'm, I've been like at a pretty good place. I don't know if Chad would agree or not of, of, um, <laughs> accepting kind of like what is like, this is what's happening. This is the reality. Uh, and I talk a lot about like managing expectations or managing reality. So if we're in burnout or we're in anxiety or kind of this chronic stressful situation, either, you know, there's usually a pretty big gap between what we expect to happen and what reality is really showing up in our lives. So I've been pretty good about accepting reality, but I've been really bad about um, lowering my expectations. And, you know, there's a part of me, because we've just started this new school and this new business, and I'm like, okay, the rest of the world is on pause, so let's just crank the gas. Like, let's just go. And then I've finally just this week, I'm like... Whew, like this, I gotta, right. I gotta manage these expectations because, because I'm gonna burn out and I'm a burnout coach. <laughs> yeah. So I like the, I really like that you said that. And I think that's well, a, well, I mean, a good reminder. Not, you know, it's our, a lot of people who are used to bucking expectations or be, when I talk about being like an overachiever or doing more than others expect, if you're already used to taking advantage of doing yes. more with less. And you can't do that with this. I mean, th- this is, you know, you've met your match, I guess. Mm-hmm. Kind of, <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. Um, well, you, uh, is this is, is similar? I mean, you've also written about ambiguous loss. I uh, love that. And, you know, how the uncertainty is constantly indefinite and the new normal just kind of is ever changing. Uh, you know, is that what we're, we're talking about too? Like, do you have best ways of dealing with ambiguous loss? Yeah, that, that, the whole concept of ambiguous loss was hugely mm. eye-opening for me That's because good. part of what it helped me understand, ambiguous loss, first of all, just to define it, um, this, this was the concept of, that Pauline Boss talked about. And it's actually a term that she coined when she started working with families who had lost loved ones in Vietnam who were uh, you know, missing in action or prisoners of war and they didn't know what happened. Um, so the problem was that people couldn't, grieve in the way that they normally would if there had been a death because they weren't sure if someone was dead or alive. And it created this challenging situation of, you know, how can I, you know, how can I manage this loss when I don't even know if it's a true loss, right? Maybe this person will come back someday, but then they probably won't. But what if they do? And that created this, you know, challenge in terms of dealing with that complicated sort of loss. And she talked about how that's essentially what's happening now. We have this ambiguous loss going on. Because we are, we've all lost something and we don't know the extent to which we've lost it or when we're going to get it back. 
I mean, presumably at some point there will return to some semblance of the normal we used to have. It might not look exactly the same, but it'll be very similar. But we don't know when that'll happen. If it'll be, you know, in four months, in, you know, I don't think it'll be four years, but I mean, we don't, Mm. not having a sense of that makes it really hard. And then you're having to deal with what you've lost. And I think a lot of us haven't even appreciated what all we have lost. Um, I still find myself, you know, doing things like, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking, oh, you know, I ought to look at indoor pools so I can see if I can find indoor swimming lessons for the kids now that the weather's starting to change. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I can't, <laughs> I can't get my kids into indoor swim lessons. Like, mm-hmm. that's not safe right now. And I, yeah. you know, I totally forgot for a moment um, that we couldn't do that. So you're kind of losing things all over again. And it's not maybe traumatic in the same way as losing, you know, an actual loved one, a person that, you know, you don't know if it's coming back or not. But the cumulative effect of it can be very, very similar. You know, I've lost the ability to go to my favorite coffee shops. I've lost the ability to feel safe going into a grocery store. I've lost the ability to get my kids out of the house once in a while. I've lost the ability to meet up with friends. I've, you know, there's all these things and they layer on top of each other. So it's like, you know, little ambiguous loss plus little ambiguous loss plus little ambiguous loss. And it just adds up to the point where you are grieving and going through the same grieving process that others are, are going through with denial and anger and bargaining um, all at the same time that you're trying to survive. So you've got this sort of overdrive that you're trying to manage, this inability to control the situation. And then all the while, there's this huge loss that's happening that you maybe haven't even reckoned with yet. Maybe you haven't even really thought hard about how it's affecting you that you've totally lost your way of life for right now. So there's this post that I've seen go around social media uh, recently, just in the last couple of days, and, and I don't know if you've seen it or not, but I'd love your take on this. Um, and it's basically where, you know, parents quit um, victimizing kids through this pandemic. Like you have an opportunity to show them a resilient mindset, like quit bemoaning how bad it is and like, oh, woe is me and really look at the silver lining, basically. Um, that's not exactly right, but that's the idea. And I'm seeing it go around and there's a part of me that, that, um, agree, agrees with that because I do think, uh, we have to have some perspective and there is a real opportunity to help kids find resilience through something as monumental as this, that they'll never probably have the rest of their life to learn from. At the same time, I am, um, as a therapist, um, really aware of the the process of grieving um and and so often i see people jump too quickly to the to the end of the sentence without going through a process that really helps them metabolize whatever they're feeling so i'm curious as a parenting uh, writer as well like you've and researcher kind of what what have you, how have you handled this with your own kids and what are you seeing as some of the best practices that parents can go through this process and without jumping to the silver lining so quickly? Uh, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I just saw that uh, yesterday for the first time. I know exactly which one you're talking okay. about. Um, and I, I, simul- I feel similarly to you. I think there's a balance to it. And this is true with most things in life where there's, mm. it's very rarely, you know, the answer is very rarely, you know, X or Y. It's yeah. somewhere in that between X and Y, right? The, the part that we forget doesn't, you know, we pretend like it doesn't exist because we're too focused on the alphabet. Um, mm. And in the case of, you know, making do with the situation we have, 
I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a both and, which is, in fact, one of the strategies that um, Ann Maston talked about in dealing with ambiguous loss, which is to say you can acknowledge the loss mm-hmm. and acknowledge the opportunity to learn from that loss um, and deal with it. So, um, you know, I've got two kids, one six and one um, ten. And they're, they're both struggling, uh, particularly my 10-year-old. He's been having a little bit more depression. And we've been you know, worried about him and kind of watching for him and looking for ways to try and um, you know, find something to do that you know, gives him some sense of control and talking to friends and stuff like that. And it's not easy to do. But we also talk openly about, hey, this is an unprecedented time. This is something that's never going to happen again. And this is a chance for us to learn from each other and, and pull together and do the best we can in this. And I think it's a bit of both. I don't think you can swing too far and say, okay, you know, turn into Pollyanna with, you know, all you, know, all you can see is um, the silver linings mm-hmm. and fuck up kids. Let's, you know, keep our, you know, resilience building up and, and what you can't just do that. But I think it's also not helpful to sort of wallow in it. And I think that's, I think the wallowing is what that particular post is trying to, move against. And I, when I read it, honestly, I read it more as the people who were saying, okay, our kids have suffered enough. It's time to go back to normal life again. Mm -hmm. And I think I saw that, that post as more of speaking to the people who themselves have not accepted that this is where we're at again, and, and are looking for excuses to say, okay, we're done. Let's go back to normal life now without understanding that, no, that's not how it works. Yeah. And I, right. I don't see people you don't negotiate with the virus. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. We can't negotiate with this virus. I don't, I don't know, Tara, if you, how, like what you're seeing, but I don't see wallowing. I see, um, a lot of struggle and a lot of, um, you know, what's the surge protector, this idea of like, I am, I'm, I'm going to keep going to the well and I'm going to keep trying, um, so, so I think there's something else that's missing, something else that we're, we're I, one thing, I mean, I, I don't know where you guys are. I'm in Texas and there is definitely a segment of the population that has this sense of, okay, we've done our part and let's, we're going to live with this now. So let's get back to normal. Yeah. And there, there's this sense of, it, it's sort of a pandemic fatigue or, yeah. or pandemic response fatigue. And I do see some people using that as an excuse to say, our kids have suffered enough. It's time for us to open up X, Y, Z. It's time for us to open the schools, open the bars, open the, and that's what I, that's the thing that I think part of what's hard to discuss in all this is we aren't one America right now. Mm -hmm. We're different Americas with, with, I mean, not, not perfectly two, but, you know, two general Americas with some crossover here and there. And it's challenging to try and understand where we are when there's a, a segment of the population, not necessarily the majority, but you know, a segment of the population that isn't taking the virus as seriously or recognizing how dangerous it is. And that makes it really hard because the way that that group of people responds to pressures might look on the outside the same as the way someone who's taking it very seriously is responding, but it's actually quite different, if that makes sense. It's kind of hard to explain what I mean, but a statement that one person makes could mean, boy, I'm having a really hard time dealing with this, but Mm -hmm. I'm trying. 
and I need a little bit of grace here. And the same exact statement from someone else could basically mean, oh, for goodness sakes, we're over this already. Let's just take off the mask and go to school. Yeah, the words could be the same. Yeah, the words could be the same. Context. Exactly. And so I think to me that post that's going around right now talking about that, I see that when sort of walking the line between the two. And I I guess guess maybe it's what you bring to it is what you take Mm -hmm. out of it. But I do think there, it is possible to work on resilience and talk through it and discuss ways of building your own resilience and to acknowledge that this really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I don't think that those are mutually exclusive. I think they go hand in hand. Absolutely. So a lot of it goes back to what you were um, saying with acceptance. It seems to be maybe hard, even that first basic step a little harder than meets the eye to to yeah. um, to be comfortable with. In um, interestingly, so you are you're also you're the author of um, the Informed Parent. You've done a lot of sci- scientifically backed research, especially for um, people with with younger children. And of course, this this book was published pre pandemic. And I'm sure you're doing all kinds of, yeah, new research now uh, in real time. Uh, But one thing that was interesting, I think that uh, Shelly and I actually saw from uh, the author of iGen, she's studying that uh, iGen generation, is that, uh, you know, there's this aspect that, you know, from very early on, uh, so we, we had all this, we've had all this anxiety of, of screen time with our kids and right. yeah. And so, but we're, and of course they're probably on screens a lot more right now. Oh, mine but, certainly are definitely. Yeah. So, but interestingly, the, the new research is not bearing out that that is necessarily causing the more anxiety and depression than it was pre pandemic. The, the, the hypothesis, her hypothesis, I don't remember her, the author's name. Gene Twangy, you yeah. I'm okay. I haven't, I haven't that, actually followed that. I'm not familiar with that. Well, she her hypothesis is that kids are at least now getting more sleep, and we're not kind of running them around from activity to activity as much, and they're not quite as stressed out. Well, she did. She looked at a sample of teenagers. Um, I think within like 13 to 18 years old. Years old, and she said she had a pre-pandemic 2018 sample set of what rates of depression, anxiety, mental health disorders, and just overall life satisfaction do those kids have. And then she's looked at a sample set from, I think, July of this year. And she found that kids were actually scoring for less depression, less anxiety, better overall life satisfaction during the pandemic. And she was, you know, we're all kind of like, what? Like, what's happening? I, I would be interested in knowing the timing on that because I think in the beginning, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's quite plausible that the kids are experiencing something similar to us where there was the period of adjustment, but settling into that for the long haul, mm-hmm. it's going to manifest in different ways. But I, I would be, I would be very cautious about being, um, not glib, but just being, taking that at face value. I think yeah. it's more complicated than that. I will say though, that I think the panic, the moral panic over screen, screen time has been exaggerated for a while anyway. And that was true even when I wrote uh, The Informed Parent with Emily Willingham. Hmm. Um, even then, there was sort of the sense of like, oh my God, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. And that was never true. The, the evidence never showed that. Um, it was very, you know, we said the same thing about TV. We said the same thing about novels when novels came out. <laughs> years ago. I mean, right. You know, that moral panic has always been there. That said, I think one of the challenges, and you see this also with um, video gaming, one of the challenges is disentangling cause and effect because you will often find associations between 
video games and depression or video or, or screen time and depression. But the question is, is the screen activity causing the depression or is the person turning to the use of that screen because they're depressed and that's all they feel like they can bring themselves mm -hmm. to do. And I think, you know, that reverse causation is something that's often missed a lot. Totally. I, I do think we are in sort of a, I mean, I see it with my own kids. We're trying to start, certainly my kids are using the screens a whole lot more than they were, um, you know, before the pandemic. But we've also noticed that if they're on there for too long, they do get more agitated and more, you know, it, it's harder for them to pull themselves away. Not like they're addicted, addicted in this classic sense, but it's just not healthy in the sense that they, they need to, you know, break apart for a while. And I yeah. think we have to be conscious of, you know, again, it's all, it's all finding that, you know, finding that middle zone, finding that, you know, that sweet spot of, sure, it's okay, they should be on there more often. In fact, I think it's healthy for them to be on there more often, especially if it's a way for them to socialize. I mean, my kids are playing a lot more Minecraft and Roblox, mm -hmm. but they're also doing it with other people their age and talking to them on Kids Messenger and getting the very socialization that they really need mm -hmm. that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get without having that access. Yeah. So there's that. But then there's also the fact that you can't spend seven hours straight all day playing on a, on a phone. And so I think there's, yep. you know, it's, it's kind of that in moderation, but the, the, where the moderation is right now can be dialed up a little bit more than it might be during other times. Yeah. That said, what you mentioned about kids not being run all around all over the place makes a lot of sense. And I can definitely see that. I think it depends on what the baseline is. Yeah, totally. And, and, and I, I think all the entire six activities, that's very different than, you know, yep. the baseline of not being involved in that much. Yeah. And the, this, this impact on our sleep, uh, you know, I think that's the big takeaway that, uh, Twangy's talked about with this new research. She's like, yeah, they're on screen time. They're on screens as much, but they're also, their sleep is a little more regulated during the summer and during the pandemic because they, they can sleep in They're you know, they, or, or, or at least it's regulated a little bit better. So she, I think her yeah, hypothesis. Yeah, a lot of that goes to school start times. Yeah, school, exactly. School start times, that's been a problem for years. Yep. Um, and I know many pediatricians who are extremely passionate about, you know, advocating for Later. more rational sleep times. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that has, that, that the re there's plenty of research showing that schools start too early. And unfortunately, it hasn't been taken seriously. And I think a lot of that's economic reasons and having to do with our work schedules. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, we're sitting here waking up at six thirty to get one of our kids and that's, off. That's and, late for some and people. Then, and then he gets home at three three p.m. Like, what? What? There was nothing that he needed to do at three, or <laughs> like he right. get home later. Um, well, let's ask you one more question because I know that you've got to go on your tight uh, timeline. Um, <laughs> you, know, you, you talk about so we, we've gone from acceptance. Let's say we've done that, and you you talk about hey, we've got to get creative in some of the ways that we're taking care of ourselves right now, do you, I know there's no easy fixes, but um, do you, do you have some creative suggestions or some practices, routines that might be working for you that you would recommend? Yeah. In fact, creative is the buzzword here because one of the things I absolutely loved when I was doing this article and, and talking to these different experts was something that Michael Maddow talked about, which was this idea that we get our, um, and you know, the, the, I guess if you will, the neurotransmitters that really get our juices going, that get us being like, you know, feeling good and happy, 
they tend to come from two different types of experiences. The ones where you're planning, so you're in that exciting kind of, ooh, I'm looking forward to this stage. And then there's the experiencing. So there's planning the trip to Disney World where you're imagining all the cool stuff you're going to do when you get there. And then there's actually getting on that roller coaster and feeling the adrenaline while you're there. Mm-hmm. And so when, you, when you're right now trying to find things that you can do for yourself, looking for experiences that enable both of those to get kicked in that is really helpful. And it tends to be creation type things. So when I say creation, it doesn't mean necessarily creative, like you need to start, you know, painting or anything, although that would also work. But the act of creating in any general sense, or the act of anything that has a beginning, middle and end, playing a board game with your family has a beginning, middle and end, and you can look forward to the end. Um, Trying a new recipe and cooking or doing more gardening or, um, you know, doing a home project in the house of something that needs to get done. It's more, you know, maybe my low scale home improvement type stuff, any kind of activity where there's a planning element involved. And then there's the experiential element to it. It sort of lets you feed off of both of those. And that was really, it's funny because one of the things that was my coping mechanism when I was hitting my lowest point was playing animal crossing, right? We're talking about screen time. Nice. And um, I will say that it wasn't entirely healthy, not for my brain, but you know, for my the other side of my body. Um, <laughs> I count a bit too much, but um, the but one of the things that I was doing in Animal Crossing, and I, I don't think I consciously realized it at first, I was creating the world I missed. I created mm-hmm. a house that became a coffee shop. I was I you know another house that I created um, was a restaurant, a cafe, you know that I couldn't go to and you know, I had a bookshelf with all these different books and I can't go to a bookstore. And, you know, I was kind of creating this, you know, I I, I create a little cemetery, I create a little maze, you know, all these little fun things. And the act of creating was really therapeutic. And I didn't consciously realize that until I was talking with Dr. Maddows about it. And he was mentioning that. So Mm -hmm. I think that act of creating and finding activities that, you know, that feed off both of those experiences is helpful. And then there's the resilience bank account, this idea of building up your resilience by engaging in the kinds of healthy activities that help you get through things. And that's something that that Dr. Miles talks about a lot, which is, you know, trying to get enough good, consistent sleep, working on improving your nutrition, trying to make sure you're getting that physical activity every day, you know, being great, you know, expressing gratitude each day and thinking of things that you're genuinely grateful for that you still have. Uh, relying on connections, um, yeah. you know, all, all those different things that we know from evidence help us remain or build resilience. Wow. Fantastic that's stuff. Perfect. That's that's helpful for me to think about too. I like the idea of the beginning, middle and end. I have to say though, if you were playing my dad in risk or chess, there was no end. That, <laughs> but, but, yeah, it's like Monopoly, right? Tara Hale. Uh, you, so the article we've been referring to for our audience is your surge capacity is depleted. It's why you feel awful. It's uh, on it's the fantastic. element. It's fantastic. So we're going to link to it so people yeah. have it it's on the elemental on medium and uh, also author of the informed parents thank you very much for sharing some of your time with yes. us uh during this pandemic yes thank you very much for having me it was fun it was yeah thank appreciate you. you being here thanks tara sure. take care awesome you thank too. you so much and you go wake up those babies i will thank you okay <laughs> we'll talk to you later bye, bye. bye.
Thanks for tuning in to the Big Self Podcast. At the Big Self School, we want you to connect with the world in a way that's meaningful. And to do that, you need a community that supports you as you rediscover your purpose and resources to help you along the way. So we're here to help with that. We offer books, workshops, and group coaching to help you rediscover your big self. We hope you'll check out our gratitude challenge this month, the month of November, at bigselfschool.com slash gratitude. We will see you in our next episode.